You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So, Joy to the World is a staple Christmas carol. You can't go caroling without singing it. You can't go through an Advent season without singing it. Despite the fact that it was never actually intended to be a Christmas carol. See, in its original form, it had nothing to do with Christmas. It wasn't even actually written to be a song, let alone a Christmas carol. It was written by Isaac Watts, who's one of the great hymn writers in church history. Uh, Probably his most well-known hymn that we sing today is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. That's Isaac Watts. And in addition to being a prolific hymn writer, Watts was also a poet. They kind of go hand in hand, you know, hymns and poems. And uh, in 1719, Watts published a book of poems where each poem was based on a messianic interpretation of one of those psalms. So he would read a psalm and he would meditate on it and consider how that psalm points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is how every passage of scripture should be interpreted. They all point to Jesus, uh, the psalms included. And so he would consider how each one of those psalms significantly uh, pointed to Jesus. And then he would write a poem about it. And in, his, uh, in, in this work, uh, Psalm 198, you can go and read it later this afternoon... When you read Psalm, uh, Psalm 98, it looks down the halls of human history to that time when God's work of salvation is complete. When Christ will rule and reign and bring to the end his work of salvation. It actually looks to Christ's second advent, not his first advent. In other words, it looks at consummation rather than the incarnation His poem on Psalm 198 would later be uh, set to music and become known as Joy to the World. And this song, we'll sing it later today, focuses on Christ's second coming when he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. You might be thinking, so how does a hymn that really focuses on Christ's second coming become a Christmas carol? Because it would seem that all Christmas carols should really be focusing on the first advent when, when Christ came uh, to be wrapped in flesh and to come as a baby boy. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. You see, Christmas carols are often sung during the, the larger season of Advent. See, in the church calendar, we don't just celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day. We celebrate the, the implications and the meaning of Christmas for the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. There's actually even 12 days of Christmas after that called Christmas time, but we don't have time to get into all the beauties of the church calendar today. But the word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming or arrival. Advent means coming or arrival. And historically, Advent has always had a double or a twin focus. Advent has always focused on both the first and the second Advent's of Christ. 
So it makes sense to consider the first advent of Christ when we consider the, the humility uh, that, uh, of Emmanuel, God with us, the reality that God would become flesh and dwell among us to become like us, to live for us, to die for us, and then to be raised for us. And all of that is very much a part of Advent. But in addition to that, Advent has always reflected on the second advent of Christ, his second coming, as we anticipate his future coming in glory to make all things new. It's like we enter into the story of the Israelites as they longed for Messiah to come, as they longed for their Savior to come to release them from bondage and captivity and to set them free. It's like we enter into that exact same story. We repent of sin. We remind ourselves of our need and dependence on Christ and we're renewed in our commitment to Him. Advent is a time where we need to Feel the weight of our sin in our hearts and the brokenness in our world. And in response, pray, Lord, come quickly. And we're fueled by hope because we know that because of Christ, our future is super bright. His light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. See, there is coming a day when the light of Christ will completely and totally eradicate the darkness. Not just be a light shining in the darkness, but be a light that overcomes, overwhelms, and eradicates the darkness. So joy to the world is in fact a very fitting Christmas carol, precisely because it invites us to set our hope on the future glorious return of Christ. So this morning, my goal is to reflect on the second advent of Christ, and how Jesus has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And as we walk through Revelation 21 and uh, a few verses into 22, we'll see five ways in which his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. I'll list them quickly so you can make a little outline to tell you where we're headed, and then we'll walk through each one. So first, we'll see that God is with us forever. The first blessing that removes the curse is that God is with us forever. Second, we'll see that death and sorrow are no more. Can you imagine that? There's coming a time when death and sorrow will be no more. Third, all the sad things come untrue. We look around and see brokenness and sadness all around us. And not only will they be gone, but they, it, it'll be as if they never happened. They will be untrue. Fourth, we'll see justice and righteousness are established. When Jesus comes, he brings justice and righteousness will flow. Fifth and finally, we'll see unending, ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. So let's get started. Revelation 21, verse 1, to see that God is with us forever. Here again, the word of the Lord. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. Now, very quickly, you know, normally our, our, our method is to, to live in a book of the Bible and to walk our way through it so that each week we kind of have the context of what's going on. In this Advent series, we've been um, jumping through different passages that focus on the light of Christ. And so here we are today jumping into the book of Revelation, and it needs a little bit of context, okay? Now, uh, often people come to this book and they treat it like a code book. Like, it, you, you remember that game Clue? And it had like the little secret decoder, you know, the, the, like the kid's version. And then you would, you would put the decoder over it and it would reveal what's going on. A lot of people treat Revelation like it's a secret code book. That if we could just break the code, then that we would get this detailed picture of how all the events leading out of the end of human history would be revealed. And, and so the, the, the point of Revelation, friends, is not to break this code and to come up with this exact timing of when Jesus is coming back. Have you noticed every single person who's ever said, I know the time. I can tell you exactly the moment when Jesus is coming back. Have you realized that none of them have been right? None of them. And some of them have tricked so many people to do it several times. Like I get it tricking people one time and saying this is the time, but when it comes and he doesn't come, like you should be done, right? But some people are so charismatic and so convincing that people will believe them over and over and over again. That's not the point of Revelation. I'm not saying that there aren't timelines and that there aren't things to consider in his return. But what I'm saying is that the main point, the reason why John wrote the book of Revelation is to give people hope and remind us that because of Christ, because we are in Christ, our future is super bright. The whole point of Revelation is hope. If you read Revelation and you don't end in hope, you need to go back because you didn't read it right. That is the whole goal of the book. Now, like all books, it was written by a particular person, that's the Apostle John, to a particular group of people for a particular reason. See, when this was written, the Apostle John wrote Revelation to a group of early Christians who were about to face horrific and sanctioned suffering unlike anything that had been seen so far in Christianity. It's not that there wasn't suffering, not that there wasn't persecution, But it was about to be unleashed in a way that had never been seen before. See, the Apostle John's at the end of his life. The first century is coming to a close. Roman Emperor Domitian was about to start the first systematic, widespread, horrific persecution of Christians. They were going to experience tears, crying, mourning, and pain, and gruesome death simply because of their allegiance and affection for Jesus. And John is saying, Christian... I know things are heating up. I know it's not looking good for us. I know that the coming days are going to be hard and difficult. But regardless, remember this. No matter what happens to you, no matter if you're thrown to the lions, no matter if you're slaughtered in the Colosseum, it will not have the final word in your life. Because you are in Christ, death does not have the final word in your life. Why? Because the word who was with God, the word who is God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, defeated death. And that word, Jesus Christ, is coming again. The word will have the final word. That's the point. And with his second coming, God will be with his people now and forevermore. And in his presence, the Bible tells us there is 
fullness of joy. And as John wraps up the book of Revelation, the book ends with a crescendo of the world to come. He gives us a glimpse, a taste, a vision of where all of this is headed. As chapter 21 opens up, did you notice we have a creation account? The Bible begins with a creation account. The Bible ends with a creation account. Except this is a recreation account. Eugene Peterson says, The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored and the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. I love that. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in a sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. See, in Genesis, creation is ruined by sin, broken by the fall. But in Revelation, creation is renewed through the sacrifice of Jesus. So in verse 1, John tells us he sees a new heaven and a new earth. That word for new in the Greek refers to a newness in quality. Greek has a lot of words. It has two words for new. There's like brand new, new. Like it wasn't there before and it's completely new. And then there's a word for new which means renewed. Newness in quality. That's that, not newness in time. That's what this word is. And so in other words, this new creation is not brand new. It's a renewed creation. And John tells us that he saw the city of God, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And as it descends, John says it's like a bride coming down the aisle, dressed and adorned to perfection what a beautiful image have you i mean you've never seen an ugly bride right i mean they're just beautiful they're just all beautiful adorned spending a whole day getting prepared for this moment coming down the aisle and that's what john says it's like this beautiful adorned bride coming down the aisle and i'd just like to point out that every single time in the bible when the gap between heaven and earth is crossed. When that gap is, is, is crossed, it's always God graciously coming down to us, not our working our way to him. In other words, the pattern in the Bible is that grace always comes down to us. God always does for us what we could never achieve on our own. In verse 3, we see... The first main reverse of the curse. This first blessing. The dwelling place of God is now the same dwelling place as man. See in the garden. The main result of the fall. The main impact. The sting of of the curse of sin. Is that God and man are separated. That sin uh, puts a barrier in their relationship. The unhindered, unfettered uh, relationship with God now has a break in it. There's an impasse there that can't just be overlooked. We know this to be true in our own relationships. Where there has been brokenness and sin, you can't just sweep it under the rug. You can't just pretend like it didn't just happen. It has to be dealt with. And in those rare moments in your life, When you're still and quiet, you feel it, don't you? And I know in our noisy, busy culture, it's rare that we ever just get still and quiet. But in those moments, don't you feel that latent feeling, that underlying and unexplainable weight of loss 
and longing. That nagging sense that you're not home. And I'm not just talking about when things aren't going well. I'm talking about even when things are going well. Your relationships are in order. You have enough money in the bank. There's food on the table. You've got money for rent to last you for several months. Even when things are going well. If you're still and quiet, you know there's something still just not right. That feeling, that nagging sense is what it means to be exiled. And that's all of us. We all live with a sense of exile. J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame once wrote, We all long for Eden. We're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Can't shake it. Can't get rid of it. We all have that feeling that we are not home. And in the new Jerusalem, which by the way, you know, Jerusalem means city of peace. Our exile comes to an end. It's the city of shalom, wholeness, completeness, restoration. There's no longer a barrier between God and man because God dwells with us forever. In the wake of sin, Humanity became homeless orphans. In the wake of redemption, humanity is adopted into the family of God and given a forever home. Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the first blessing is that our exile is over. We are welcomed home. The second blessing is we see that death and sorrow are no more. Look at verse 4. He, this is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the aftermath of the fall, the plague of sin began to choke out life. Tears and crying Pain and mourning are all the result of the curse having its way in our lives. A constant reminder that death is coming and will one day choke out our life. You see, every form of suffering that you've ever experienced is a small taste of death. What is suffering? Suffering is, is loss. It's grief. It's the world in the way that it should not be. And it's a reminder that death is looming. Death is coming. It's a foreshadowing of our final suffering, the ultimate suffering, when we lose everything precious to us, when we breathe our last breath and die. Every loss, every pain, every tear is a reminder that death has entered in and is here to still kill and destroy. Now, do you remember that scene in Revelation 19? It's one of my favorite passages of scripture when John describes the final cosmic battle and Jesus enters into the scene. His name, they say Jesus is faithful and true. Not just that he is faithful and true, but that's his name. And he comes riding out of heaven on a white horse. His eyes are focused like a flame of fire. And he's called the word of God. That is his name. By the way, he has a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he battles sin, Satan, and death. And they're defeated 
thrown into the lake of fire. That's why by the time we get to Revelation 21, John can say, death is no more. Because in Revelation 19, he's defeated it. And the former things have passed away. And as you open up verse 4, Revelation 21 says, Our compassionate Father, the God of all comfort, what does he do? He wipes away our tears and brings an end to death's reign. This will be that moment when our faith is made sight, our hope becomes a reality. And it will be that moment when we can go, oh yeah, Paul, you were right. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says this. Paul's pointing us to the future. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the unseen are eternal. You see what he's doing? He's saying what you see right now is temporary. There's going to come a day when you can say these things have passed away. So don't focus on this. Focus on what is unseen. This coming glory. And as you hope in that, it will actually transform your experience of these moments right now. The coming glory enjoys such that it transforms the crushing suffering of today. And friends, I'm not downplaying suffering. I know it's crushing. But Paul is saying, if we will put our hope in the things that are unseen, it will transform the current crushing suffering. And we'll be able to see it as light and momentary. That's not to belittle what you're going through now. But it is. To make much of and to believe in the promise and goodness of everlasting life. C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he writes this. This is what mortals misunderstand. That's all of us. We're mortals. This is what we misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. See, when Jesus comes, friends, there's no more funerals. No more senseless suffering. No more pain. See, without that hope, without that future hope, all we would have is despair. If we had no future hope, they would be crushing sufferings, but... Because there is hope, we can endure because we know Jesus is coming to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Friends, God will be with us forever. And death and sorrow will be no more. Number three, all sad things come untrue. Verse five, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whose words are trustworthy and true. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
He has unleashed grace into the world and it won't stop until all things are made new. His grace has a trajectory and it is all things new. Later in John, uh, in, in chapter 22, John take, uh, paints a beautiful picture of that healing that will take place in the new Jerusalem. Chapter 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree for, were for the healing of the nation. So not only will we drink from the water of life, we will also eat from the tree of life. Remember that tree in the garden? It makes its way back again. We'll eat from that tree of life. That tree of life is nourished by the river, this river of the water of life, and the tree produces fruit year-round. Now that should, we should, not, you know, none of us are farmers in here. None of us like work in an orchard. And so, you know, we go to the supermarket and we think Fruit grows year-round because it's always available. Like there's never a time when you can't get an orange or an apple or whatever. But did you know, like newsflash, trees don't produce fruit year-round. They have seasons and cycles. So this, should, this, this is supposed to uh, make us go, oh my goodness, this tree, this tree of life is always producing fruit. It doesn't have on-seasons and off-seasons. It's always producing fruit, which means there's always life. There are no off-seasons for the tree of life. Not only that, but its leaves provide healing for the nations. See, in the ancient world, you didn't go to the pharmacy and get pills. All of their medicines were, uh, were, were more uh, or organic and, and, and herbal and, and from trees and bushes and flowers and things. So this would have resonated with people. This tree has leaves that provide healing for the nations. Do you see the picture of restoration here? Do you see how the blessings of Jesus are removing the effects of the, tr- of the curse? Do you see how sad things are coming untrue? In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, do you remember that scene after the ring has been destroyed at Mount Doom? It's like it's the aftermath, it's the very end. Samwise Gamgee wakes up from his sleep. He was knocked out cold and he's surprised, first of all, that he's alive because he thought he died. He's surprised that Frodo's alive after all they've been through. And then who does he see? He sees Gandalf, and he thought he was dead. And then he says to Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? See, his question is profound. He's not merely asking, are good things going to start happening now? Now that we've defeated the ring and and the the evil of of Mordor, are good things going to start happening? That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's asking if the sad things, all that they've been through, will come untrue. See, when God says, behold, I am making all things new, what he's saying is that even the sad things that have happened will come untrue. The curse will be undone, and the world will be good, true, and beautiful once again. Michael Kruger writes this. Sam's statement, he's commenting back on the statement I just read. Like all Christian eschatology, recognizes that there is currently something very wrong with the world. It is a place that is filled with sadness, cursed by sin, groaning as it awaits its redemption. And in the final consummation, that's when Christ comes, the sad things will be made untrue. The curses rolled back and the world will be changed. Friends, are you tired of the futility and the frustration of this broken world? 
Are you exhausted by sin and suffering and death? Are you burdened with the pain that lives inside of you and outside of you? And at times, do you wonder if anyone knows, if anyone understands, and if anyone cares? Friends, Revelation says, yes. Behold, I will make all things new. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, speaking of Advent, said the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. See, if you find yourself weary and broken and looking forward to something to come, Advent is for you. Advent is for you. Put your hope in these words, friends. Jesus is going to come and make all things new. His work of redemption, though it is finished, is not yet done. Do you remember Jesus' final words on the cross? He said, it is finished. What was he speaking about? He's speaking about his suffering for our sins in our place. The work of the cross, friends, was finished on that day. But the work of redemption is not complete. That's what is coming. His coming, his second advent, when the blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As soon as every last sin broken thing has been completely renewed. That's when he can say, it is done. Friends, God will be with us forever. Death and sorrow will be no more. All the sad things will come untrue. Number four, justice and righteousness are established. Verse seven, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then chapter 22, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Everyone loves verse 7. It speaks to our uh, adoption and status as God's sons and daughters. It speaks to our future inheritance and heritage. It gives us an identity as conquering sons and daughters. But when we come to verse 8, maybe you felt it, we cringe a little bit. Verse 8 offends our modern ears. If we're honest, verse 8 is one of those verses where we're tempted to ignore it. Like maybe don't put it in the reading today. Maybe don't include it on Christmas. Our culture, right now, every day, you are being discipled by the culture. And it disciples us to meticulously craft words and behaviors that never offend anyone. You know that? It, I don't know about you. It feels like we're always walking on eggshells everywhere we go. It's like we're one tweet away from being canceled and going viral. Now these verses offend, not because they're offensive or cruel, but because they speak truth. We're, we're at a point in our culture where just saying true things is seen as offensive. It's rare in our day for people to speak plainly about plain things. Everything has all this like extra uh, language around it. No one just says true things plainly. So let me speak plainly for a minute. These verses say rather matter-of-factly that there will be those who reject the grace of God. 
There will be those who love the darkness and hate the light. There will be those who reject God's law and order and desire to live for their own sinful, selfish desires. And friends, the result will be judgment. That's what verse 8 said. The result will be judgment. There simply is no hope of salvation for any who do not seek to turn from their sin and turn towards righteousness. See, there are two kinds of people in these verses. One group is identified as conquering sons and daughters. You remember that in verse 7? Conquering sons and daughters. The other group is identified by their sins. One group is, you are sons and daughters, receiving inheritance and heritage. The other is, liars, idolaters, sexually immoral, detestable, right? They're identified, known by their sin. See, ultimately, we all will become what we behold. We are all on a trajectory of becoming. And we will all become what we worship. If you worship sexual immorality, you will become the sexually immoral. Like you, if you worship deception and, and lying, you will become a liar. You become what you worship, either for your ruin or your restoration. So here's how it works. If you worship God, guess what? You'll be restored, renewed, redeemed, and live forever as a child of God. Ultimately, if you worship yourself, Following the desires of your heart, holding on to your sin, you will be ruined and remained exiled forever in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. What you hold on to, you will eventually become. When Jesus comes to make his blessings flow, as far as the curse is found, part of that blessing is bringing his judgment on the earth. And that's actually good news. Our culture thinks judgment is bad news. But the reason is we're told not to seek vengeance for injustice is because Jesus says he will bring justice when he returns again. How do we make sure that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life? John says it in verse 6. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You're going, "That's that's how I receive this? And the answer is yes. Be thirsty. See, when you're thirsty, you know your need for water. You know your need for water. The, if, you, if you've ever been truly thirsty, you give up all pretense, you forsake everything for a simple drink of water. Be thirsty for God. And John says you will be satisfied. You'll be called his son. You'll be called his daughter. Jesus gave his life. To give us access to this spring of the water of life. That's why we come to the water without payment. So the question you have to ask is, are you thirsty? Do you want a drink from the spring of the water of life without payment? If you are, God says, come and drink. You're welcome, invited. If you are a Christian, my hope is that you would remain thirsty. As I get older, I'll turn 40 in January. There are friends, dear brothers and sisters that I have been in church with, and they, they've lost their thirst. 
They're no longer thirsty. And that, that, that early group of Christians that I became friends with when I first became a Christian, very few of them are following the Lord today. They've lost their thirst. Maybe you're here today and you've never just said to Jesus, I am thirsty. There's an invitation for you today to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. All it requires is to say, I thirst and I can't produce water on my own. Come to the water and drink. See, his justice and righteousness is good news because when he comes and removes sin, we can finally have that peace. So when Jesus comes again, we will be with God forever. Death and sorrow will be no more. All the sad things will come untrue. Righteousness and justice will be established. And here's our fifth and final point. That Jesus brings unending, ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. John says that in the New Jerusalem, there's no need for a temple to house the presence of God because the dwelling place of God is now the dwelling place of man. They're one in the same. You see, in the Old Testament, you needed a temple. You needed to have this this separate, set-apart, holy space for the presence of God to dwell. That was uh, a lot of work would go in to keep this place free of sin, to house the presence of God. And in the New Jerusalem... Because sin has been eradicated, his, his, his presence is free to dwell among us. For John to say that the temple is the Lord God Almighty and that the Lamb is the temple is to say that we will experience and enjoy God's presence unhindered and unencumbered. Now friends, we don't know what that's like. None of us. No matter how... Like you might go, there's this moment where I felt like I was in the presence of God and it was awesome. And, I, and I don't, I'm not taking away from that experience. But I'm saying is even that best experience that you might look back on still was hindered and encumbered. None of us have ever worshipped the Lord completely and totally unhindered and unencumbered. And what this verse is saying is that there's coming a day when we will worship God and a kind of freedom and joy that is simply beyond our imagination and experience. I've heard people ask, won't that get boring? Like just worshiping God all the time? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> because right now you don't have a category or reference point to understand what it will be like to be in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy. Now, what I'm saying is, is that the coming worship of God will not be like what we experience here. I love our church. I planted our church. I'm a big fan of our church. I think we have the best church in all of New England, okay? But if, if eternal worship was just this, I could see how you go, yeah, that might get boring, okay? Even our best worship service would get boring. What I'm saying is what is coming, you, you just don't have a category for. You don't have a reference point for it. The, the, it's beyond your imagination. There's coming a day when our resurrected bodies will never grow weary or tired 
or weighed down by sin. In the new heavens and new earth, we will enjoy people, activity, work, and most of all, we will worship the Lord. J.I. Packer says it well. He says, being with Jesus is the essence of heaven. It is what, the li- uh, uh, what life everlasting is all about. So what will we do in heaven? Not lounge around, but worship, work, think, communicate, enjoying activity, beauty, people, and God. And first and foremost, we shall see and love Jesus, our Savior, Master, and Friend. If you think about heaven and you think of a Jesus-less heaven, friends, you have thought of the wrong place. First and foremost, the joy of heaven is Christ himself. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and the lamp is the lamb. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Have you noticed every main verse that we have uh, looked at throughout this Advent season has had light as one of its themes? And twice in a few verses, John picks up on these themes in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20, that the glory of God will be our everlasting Light. See, when John was writing this, he had Isaiah 60 in his mind. In the same way that we need the light of the sun to give life to our world, in the new heavens and new earth, the glory of God powers and enlivens the new heavens and new earth. In other words, in the world that is to come, there are no competing lights. There is no competing glories. And his glory is the only light we need. Verse 24 By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The picture here is people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, being magnetically drawn in to the presence of God. Like moth to the flame, drawn in. The city has no need for protective gates. Why? Because sin and destruction are no more. The peoples of the earth are no longer uh, uh, moving about doing their own things as they come into the city of peace. All tribalism, all warring will come to an end as we unite together as the people of God. And then the final verses say this. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Friends, there's coming a day when we will see God face to face. I don't have time to fully trace this theme, but in the Old Testament, the face of God was synonymous with the presence of God. And what I don't mean is that it was like an idiom for the presence of God. I mean, in Hebrew, they're the exact same word. Face, presence are all in the same word, panim. What he's saying is, we will come face to face into the very presence of God. There are a few things in life that are more intimate than being face to face with someone. Have you noticed that? Like we don't just let anybody into that space. Like right here, 
Like you reserve that space for like a very short list of people. If you don't believe me, try getting in someone's face today. That space is reserved for loved ones. And not just loved ones, but like the most intimate ones. That's a husband and wife kind of uh, place. That is a parent and child kind of place. And John is saying, in the new heavens and the new earth, when the city of peace comes down, when all is said and done, we will be face to face with God. And we will experience the unending, ever increasing joy of being in his presence. What John is giving us here is a picture of every hindrance removed. Every barrier taken down. Every hesitation removed as we live in communion with God. And not only that, I love this. John says, his name will be on our foreheads. This is a reference to the high priest. Uh, in the book of Exodus where uh, it talks about the, 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 the clothing of the high priest. Uh, one of the things that the high priest wears is a turban uh, with a gold plate. And on that plate is inscribed uh, the words, um, holy to the Lord. He was the only person who was allowed to have the name of God on their clothing. They, they didn't even say the name of God, let alone inscribe it on them. In other words, he was saying uh, to be holy to the Lord is to be set apart for the Lord. So when the Lord put his name... On the high priest's head, he was saying, you are mine. And you are set apart for a very specific purpose. In the world to come, everyone has the name of the Lord on their head. And he's saying, you are mine. It's beautiful. In closing, J.I. Packer says this again. Hearts on earth. Say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to end. But it invariably does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There can be no better news than this. Have you had those moments in your life where it was so good? Maybe it was a meal that you just didn't want to end. Maybe it was a, a party or a, a wedding or just this this place where it felt like communication and, and talking were just free-flowing and it was just awesome. And you thought, I just don't want this to end. But what happens? They always end. Something always causes it to come up short. But in heaven, that feeling, that experience, that intimacy, that joy never ends. Friends, Jesus has come to restore every single thing that sin has broken. His redemptive mission is as complete as sin's destruction is comprehensive. In other words, every way in which sin has broken this world, Jesus' redemption mission fixes it such that God will be with us forever. Death and sorrow will be no more. All sad things will come untrue. Finally, justice and righteousness will be established and we will one day live in the unending, ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. So this Advent, let's remember the birth of Christ. Let's remember his first coming in humility. But let's also anticipate 
and long for his second coming when he comes in glory and he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the earth, a curse is found. Let's pray.